Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. We're doing this series called Risking It All and just talking about God calling us to step forward and risk. And just think about that for a second. Risk is because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to turn out. And we've been going through the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 11, and there's like some people, the very thing they were shooting for happens, you know, Moses, and the people get delivered. And then there's other people that get cut in two, or heads chopped off, and it doesn't go the way they probably thought that was going to go. And, and you just don't know. Now, there's no risk for God, because God knows everything. But you think what we're doing is we're using the word risk synonymous with faith. And faith defined in Hebrews, uh, it's the, the assurance of things hoped for. And so if it's hoped for, you haven't experienced it yet. It's the, the conviction of things not seen. You, you, don't, you don't know how it's going to go. And so I hope that as we've been doing this series, that God stirred in you a thought about what's the ne- next risk that God wants me to take. For some of you, you might be trusting a Savior today. And you might have some questions still about who God is and, and what He's like and how come, and you've got questions that you just haven't answered, but you step out and you trust Him. And for some of you, it might be in there, uh, going back to school. You know, we've got students that are headed back in the fall. And how are you going to represent Jesus in your classroom and the new classmates and different friends and in your marriages and with money and at your career? And some of you, God's going to call to sell everything and go across the world to tell people about Jesus. And for some of you, it's going to be have a conversation with somebody you've known for a long time. But what's God stirring in you? I hope that as we've been going through the series, that you love Jesus more now than you did in June. And that's, a, that's worth, like, I don't even have to preach. Like that, you can just think about that today. That's worth contemplating. But I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to jump in today to Hebrews chapter 11. We're starting verse 23. If we're like the first service, which I like to keep us on the same pace, that's the only verse we're actually going to get through, uh, which wasn't my plan today. So uh, let me pray. Father, thank you uh, that we get to hear from you. And God, uh, we are interested in hearing what you have to say to us. And so I pray as I, I speak up here today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd have a conversation with every person that's sitting here, even if it's about something different than what I'm talking about, that you would convict and encourage and change and draw irresistibly so that they couldn't even say no to you. And, and then, uh, God, I just pray that, that people would, would weigh out living for this world, living for eternity, and see that it's not even a comparison, and they would live for you. And Father, I pray pray even as Nikki said, there's this folly, there's foolishness that we do. Some of us wouldn't even know we're doing it. Some of us are willingly doing it. Will you turn our path and turn it back to you? And uh, I pray as we open up the scriptures, you'd open us up, our hearts, our minds, our lives, and that we'd be yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever seen somebody else's experience and thought, well, that's normal for you. Why am I not experiencing that? Like one of the popular things here I've noticed in the North Raleigh area uh, for vacations for families is to go to Disney. And so you drive around and you see, and I'm not going to bash Disney, though, so I know we've got some big fans out here, uh, but you see people with their minivans and on the back they've got the stick people, they've got the Musketeer ears on the back, and you scroll through social media and it's not uncommon for me to see somebody standing in front of the, you know, the big castle, it's got the blue points on it, and everybody's smiling. And I think to myself, aren't you like melting? Like I've been to Florida, it's hot. And so, but they're all smiling. And so you see those things and you think, well, I should, I mean, they say it's the happiest place on earth. It's where dreams come true. I've been. I've never sweat that much in my dreams, okay? 
I don't remember all my dreams, but I don't think I wait in line for four hours for anything in my dreams. And so you go there and you're like, you know, you got your whole family. It's supposed to be the happiest place on earth, but you're fighting with everybody. Like, stop, don't touch that. Oh, the poles are gross. Leave those people alone. Like all that stuff's happening. You pass them like a hundred times because you're going through the maze. You go to like the Toy Story ride. I don't know if you've been to the Toy Story ride or not. And uh, they put you in this room that's a waiting room and you anticipate the corner the entire time. And you get around the corner and you're in another waiting room. It's like a waiting room for a waiting room. Like, who does that? You know who? The doctor. <laughs> and the doctor's office is not the happiest place on earth, by the way. You know, and it's fun when you first get in there. Some guy in the back's yelling, you know, it's, you're at Toy Story. So they yell so the characters will fall down. You know, Andy's coming! And thinking they're all going to play dead. That was funny, like at the beginning. But when you're three hours into that deal, yeah, don't do that anymore. And then you get home and you got the bill and it's like, wait a minute, this is not the happiest place. How come what I experience and what I'm seeing everybody else experience don't line up? Maybe vacations happened to you like that before. Maybe not Disney, maybe somewhere else. Or, or maybe, uh, have you gone through the drive-thru and you see the pictures of the food that they put on the drive-thru and then you get your food? <laughs> not the same thing. I saw this on, on Reddit this week. Somebody went through Burger King. Yeah, that's oftentimes the experience. Now here's the deal. Whoever it was, it's called Burger King. Why did you order a hot dog? But still not as pictured. And it's one thing when this happens in life when your expectations and reality don't connect. When it's a meal or it's a vacation. But what about the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible and seen what Christianity was like in the Bible and then thought to yourself, how come that's not what I'm experiencing? Like, like, it's really trendy right now to say that the problem with the American Christianity is the American church. You know, it doesn't say in here that we're supposed to meet at 11 on Sundays. That's true. We do some stuff because it's tradition, not just because it's in the Bible. But, you know, should it be a house church or should it be a mega church? Should it be somewhere in between? Should it be a small church, a traditional church, a secret church, a, a ba you know, big band and like a concert or like we all sing a cappella and nobody has an instrument. Or like, what should it be? And so you go to the Bible and you're like, well, these people were experiencing incredible stuff. What did they do? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this. And they devote, by the way, there are 3,000 of them. They would oftentimes meet in homes. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they taught the Bible, New Testament. And the fellowship, so they're in a relationship with each other. The breaking of bread, we're going to do communion today. And the prayers. Well, I don't think you need to like write a whole book on like the secret to doing church here. I mean, it's got four things that happened here. Teach the Bible, be in a relationship with each other, break bread, pray. All right. We do that. And most house churches do that and mega churches, and traditional churches, and secret churches. And so, what are we missing? Because that's Acts chapter 2. You know what happens in Acts chapter 3? Uh, they're on their way into worship, and there's a guy begging. And they don't go, get a job! You know, so don't do that. They don't give money either. They say, hey, we don't have any money. We're going to give you Jesus. And the guy was lame, and now he can walk. And so he's dancing around, coming into worship. <laughs> they dance. And, so, and then they come in there, and they're getting told, they're not supposed to tell anybody about Jesus. They keep telling people about Jesus. I've never had that happen. Have you? Maybe I come too early. I don't know. But then you read Acts chapter 5. They did keep telling people about Jesus, so they get arrested. Then they're miraculously re released from prison. I've never had that happen. Have you? We'd love to get a video of your testimony. <laughs> but it seemed normal for them. Or have you ever had like the Holy Spirit directs you somewhere and maybe you've had that with an impression in your heart or, or somebody, you know, some, somebody spoke to you and was like, I think God wants you to do this and you did it and, you go, and then you see somebody reading the Bible. This is Acts chapter 8. This guy's reading the Bible to himself. The Holy Spirit directed this guy to go walk by him and he says to the guy, do you know what you're reading? He goes, how would I know unless somebody explained it to me? Which sounds a lot like the book of Romans 
How are you going to have faith unless somebody tells you? And how is somebody going to tell you unless they go to the person that needs to hear? And so we're seeing this lived out, like what's written in the Bible. They're living it out. They're experiencing it. And so then he tells this guy, what you're reading about in Isaiah, it's Jesus. And he places his faith in Jesus. And then Philip is the guy that's telling him about Jesus. He baptizes the guy. When he brings the guy back up out of the water, he's transported to his next gospel experience. Can you imagine the guy who was baptized? Where'd he go? And then you're him. And you're, I've never had that. You ever had that? You like read this stuff in the Bible and you're like, I've never had that experience. Have you ever had this experience? Acts chapter 20. There's a preacher that's preaching. He just keeps going on and on. Don't say anything. <laughs> One of the guest speakers. And then, uh, and then somebody falls asleep. You're like, I can relate to that. There we go. Yes, pastor. Yeah, amen, amen. <laughs> somebody falls asleep in Acts chapter 20. He's on the third row of the balcony. He falls and he dies. And Paul says, oh, he's alive. And he lays on him, brings him back to life. Ever had that? I haven't. I'm just like, I see that hand. Yeah, you're snoring, whatever. How come what we read in the Bible and what we experience, it's like what was normal in the Bible seems so abnormal to us. Maybe it's not the model of church. And maybe it's not the quote unquote things they were doing, but the lives they were living. Because what you see in the Bible is that normal Christianity required abnormal risk. And what we oftentimes see in American culture is that we've made Christianity something other than what the Bible says. Like Jesus says things like this, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose your life. And we're like, ah, add Jesus to your life. He'll make it better. He'll help you get the American dream. And then we make Jesus into a belief system rather than a person that we're following. Or, or we get more moral than our neighbors. And so we feel like that then they should be like us because we're better people than they are. And Jesus, where did Jesus say that? Or worse, we make it a political position. When did Christianity become a political position? I think Jesus meant it when he said, if anyone, even in America, if anyone wants to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. And that requires risk. But here's the deal. I think what we're going to see when we look at Moses' life this week and next week, in two parts at least, that we were made for risk. And the reason why we're missing some of what we should be experiencing is because we're being robbed of what we were made to do. Because you know what the real risk is? It's what the American church is doing. It's attempting to live without faith. Because it actually says, Hebrews eleven six, without risk, it's impossible to please God. So the impossible thing is not living by faith. The impossible thing is to please God without living by faith. And that is a scary thing. The way the Hebrew says it is, don't fall into the hands of the living God. Scary. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going to be today, starting in verse 23. Uh, Just a reminder, because it's possible when you jump into Hebrews chapter 11 uh, to think it's just a bunch of good stories. Hey, how about Enoch, and how about Abel, and how about Gideon, and how about Abraham, and how about all these guys, Moses? And it's pretty awesome, and it's encouraging. But don't forget, we've been studying the book of Hebrews since the beginning of January. Now, some of you, today's your first day here. We're glad you're here. Some of you, you've been coming here since our first service in 2007. We're glad you're here. But here's what's been happening since January, is we said, why did Hebrews get written? It got written to some people who at one time were willing to risk for Jesus. But it was starting to get uncomfortable in the culture. And the temptation was to go back to their religion, where things are controlled and where they're comfortable. And they were were Messianic Jews. That's why it's called Hebrews. They were Hebrew people who had come to Christ. And they committed their lives to Jesus. And then what the author does at the beginning of the book is says, hey, by the way, Jesus is better than everything else. He's better than Moses, Hebrews chapter 3. He's better than angels, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. He's better than all of creation. He's better than sex. He's better than money. He's better than all that stuff, Hebrews chapter 1. And he is speaking to you. Don't drift. Don't miss what he has for you, Hebrews chapter 3, like the Israelites when they wouldn't go into the promised land because they failed to risk. 
And then he tells them in Hebrews chapter 10, right before chapter 11 here, he says this. He uses them as the example. At one time you were willing to risk, verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your, you'd let your house be taken from you in the name of Jesus. Some of you were there at one time, maybe not today. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, you're living for eternity. And then he says to them, don't forget who we are as followers of Christ. He says, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back. We don't have a spirit of timidity, of fear, and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere, preserve their souls. He's telling them to endure, to keep going. And then Hebrews chapter 11, he defines what faith is. You read the first six verses. He defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things unseen, since it's impossible to please God without faith. And then he tells all these people who walked by faith in spite of circumstances, regardless of their family, no matter what was happening in culture. And then we get to Moses, and there's a lot of stuff said about Moses. We'll start in verse 23. I'll read through verse 26. It goes all the way to 29 for him, but by faith... And so here's our pattern. It'll say, by faith, the name of the person, and what did their faith look like? And it doesn't talk about a belief system. never gets mentioned how somebody voted. It's not just talking about their morality, but look at the action they take. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing, so it was a choice here, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures, so sin is pleasurable, but it's fleeting, fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, as he weighed his options, contemplated this, the reproach of Christ. Wait, Christ is in the book of Exodus? We'll talk about that next week. The reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so here we have Moses set up as this example of somebody, regardless of the culture that you're born into, because he's brought into a culture of death, and instead his family chooses life, regardless of the culture that you're born into, that can take a stand for Jesus. Well, he took a stand for Jesus? Jesus hadn't even been born yet. How did he? Yeah, we're going to get into that. But he's showing it's possible because he's done it. And that's what Hebrews does. Like some of you, as you hear this series, you think, yeah, right, that's fine for like Gideon, but you don't know my circumstances. Did you hear Gideon's story? Like, hey, you know what the problem is, Gideon? God says, it's too easy. Let's make that harder. No, it's still too easy. Yeah, make it a little bit harder. And I've got family issues. Oh, were you here last week? Did you hear about Abraham? That's not normal. <laughs> and what God's calling you to do might not be normal either, but normal Christianity requires abnormal risk. And what happens here for Moses, he's, he's coming into a unique culture and showing it's possible to stand for Christ even in this culture with all the temptations of the wealth, with all the things that are happening, all the ways that you would be ostracized, put aside, oppressed. Yeah, it's possible. It's like, have you all seen Top Gun 2, the you know, Top Gun Maverick in the 30 years later version? Seen it? Anybody here that wants to see it that hasn't seen it yet? I'm about to mess that up for you. All right, spoiler alert. Won't tell you the end, but you've had time, been warned. Here's like a trailer. How about that? I'll give you like a preview of what happens here. Uh, what happens is Tom Cruise somehow still looks 25, by the way, uh, but Tom Cruise uh, was in this movie, you know, 30 plus years ago, and he was the Top Gun class there and got, you don't know the 80-something movie? He was the second guy in that movie, and so he didn't, he wasn't the top of the class because he was rebellious. They called him Maverick, kind of did his own thing. Well, what happens is 30 plus years later, they pick it up, he's still the same personality. And so he's still flying planes rather than becoming an officer. And one of the assignments that he gets is to go back and teach the class that at one time he was a part of. 
but it's all the top graduates from other Top Gun classes. The reason why he's supposed to teach this class is because America has a special mission. They don't call it an impossible mission, although I thought they missed an opportunity with that. <laughs> and the mission is there's an unsanctioned uranium plant that needs to be shot. The problem is, in order to fly in there, there's surface-to-air missiles that are, that are lined up, and so what Tom Cruise does is he comes up with this route that they have to fly in a specific time in order to escape and make a shot. It's an impossible route in an impossible time with an impossible shot and an impossible escape. And so the students are struggling. They're discouraged. His boss thinks that he's asking too much of them. He wants to be able to do it himself. They're saying, nope, you're done with that time of your career. It's time for these guys to do this. And so there's this battle that's taking place, and every time Maverick does something rebellious, he's got a buddy who bails him out. Well, his buddy's removed from the situation, won't ruin the movie for you in that, but he can't bail him out anymore, and his boss doesn't like him, so his boss removes him from the team, says, you're not going to be teaching this team anymore, I'll take over. First day of class, the new boss comes in and says, I think the time that they had to do it in was 2.30, 2 minutes and 30 seconds. He says, we're going to change that to like 4 minutes and 15 seconds, and you see the students' faces, and they're not like excited. They're like, that doesn't... I mean, we don't know if it's possible to do what we were asked to do before, but this doesn't seem right. Let me just put that into our lives for a second. Nelson Mandela once said, there's no passion in playing small. And think about how many of us live. There's no passion to be found in playing small. You and I have a big God. If you're going to risk for him, go big. And so Nelson Mandela goes on to say, what a tragedy it is that you don't live the life you're capable of living. And that's what happens to many of us when we look at the Bible. It's like, this is what's supposed to be happening and what I'm experiencing is so different. So back to Top Gun. Uh, what happens in Top Gun is he gets removed from this class, but then Tom Cruise, Maverick, steals a plane, which apparently you don't get in trouble for in movies at least. <laughs> steals a plane and goes through the practice route that they have, which is the exact replica of the route they're supposed to go through in two minutes and 30 seconds. And he flies at an impossibly low altitude, below surface to air missiles, through an impossible route, and instead of 2.30, 2.15, makes an impossible shot, shot and makes an impossible escape, and then is talking back to the class, the class realizes it, and you know what happens at that moment? They realize it's possible. Not only is it possible, it's been done by someone else. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. And that's why Hebrews chapter 12 says to you, you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You and I, we're not the people who shrink back. We persevere. Keep going. Other people have done it, and they're saying to you, it's possible. The thing that's impossible is to please God and not do it. And so what's happening? What's happening with Moses? The first thing that we see with Moses is God prepared him for this abnormal risk. And so I want to propose to you today just one point. Perhaps God is preparing you for abnormal risk today, right now. Perhaps right now in this moment, the very reason you're even in this room or watching online is part of God's preparation for you and the next abnormal risk, abnormal to our society, abnormal to American Christianity, but normal Christianity, abnormal risk that God's going to call you to take. And the problem with looking at Moses is, most of us, Moses is so heroic and so iconic that, that when we think of him, we think of like pictures that you've seen 
or movie, maybe you've seen like the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, or maybe there's, you know, the Prince of Egypt, or you've seen these different things. And, and usually when Moses is played, whether it's a, a play or a movie, they pick a guy who at one time was in all the teen movies. You know all the teen movies, all the guys look the same? Big hair, square jaw, like they all look the same. And like Moses is that guy only with a white beard and white hair. Usually it's like a 20-something-year-old guy that's wearing a white hair and white, whatever. You look at that, and then he's standing in front of water, and his face is glowing, and some mountain he's just come down off of, and you're like, that's amazing. That ain't anything to do with me. <laughs> that's Moses at the end of his life. At the end of Moses' life, it says uh, this in the book of Deuteronomy. It talks about him. In fact, it's actually, this is um, preparatory for Jesus coming. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 through 12, uh, Jesus is the next one like Moses, by the way. It says this about Moses, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land and all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Here's the reality though, Moses wasn't always like that. In fact, you've got you to read the Bible. Don't just believe what Hollywood tells you. Don't just believe what some Christian publisher tells you. Like, look, and what does the Bible actually say? And what you see with Moses when you start reading the book of Exodus and start reading about his life is that you see he was a very ordinary dude. In fact, probably considered below average. He comes from a very broken family situation. His grandfather tries to kill him. That's not normal. He's got a broken moral compass. He kills a guy and thinks everybody's going to make him a hero. If I came in here today and I was like, how are you? What'd you do? Yeah, I was just at work. What'd you do, Pastor Scott? I killed somebody. Isn't that awesome? You'd be like, oh, this is different. Is there police in the lobby? Like, what's going on here? Moses thinks that's, that's good. That's not normal. The guy's super insecure. And when God calls him, he keeps refusing. Like, sometimes we talk about the burning bush path. Have you read Exodus 3 and 4 in a while? Like, some of you have been Christians for a long time. Exodus chapter 3 and 4, there's that burning bush. We always talk about the bush. How about what Moses does? The first thing he says when God calls him and goes, who are you? Me? Who? He's got identity issues. He's like, you're not calling me, right? He doesn't know that God takes ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He thinks he's like, you've got to be a superhero, like at the end of his life type stuff. Well, God developed him into that guy. You know, you know what happens next? You know what he tells God? God tells him what he's going to do. And do you know what Moses does? He says, yeah, I don't think that's a very good plan. <laughs> it's amazing God didn't wipe him out. And, and then the next thing he says is he goes, yeah, I don't think if you send me, people are going to believe me. So then God does personal miracles for Moses with a staff, with some water. He gives Moses leprosy and heals the leprosy in that, like, within like a minute. That's pretty incredible. You would think at that moment, Moses would be like, okay, I'll go. Nope. After that, then Moses says, yeah, but I can't speak. And God says, who made your mouth? And then he says, I'll tell you what I'm, I give you the capability, I made your mouth, and I'm going to give you the content. I'm going to tell you what to say. Basically, Moses, just say yes. Nope. Moses then starts acting like a child. I know this because I have children. He goes, can you just have somebody else do it? Like, have you ever asked your kid, like, can you just go clean up the kitchen? Ask my sister. It's like Moses here. It's like... And you'd think God would kill him at that moment. And the text says, this stirred God's anger. But he's slow to anger, abounding in love, just like he is with you and me. And Moses has a lot of the same problems you and I have. 
We have broken perceptions of the weight and what is right and wrong. We're insecure. We're not secure in our identity. We're like, why would you pick? Like when we talk about Moses, we're the people that go, well, you're going to pick somebody else, not me. Like there might be somebody here, like not me. That's Moses. And God uses them greatly. You know the types of people that God often uses greatly? It's the ones that risk greatly. It's not that they're great. God often uses those who risk greatly to do great things for him. It's because they're willing to say, put their yes on the table. Anything, anytime, anywhere. Whatever you want, whenever you want it, wherever you want me to go. I'm, I'm in for that. That's who he uses. That's Moses. Moses does say, I'll, I'll go. It's a good thing because he's probably about to get killed. Read Exodus 3 and 4. And then verse 23, you notice how God begins to prepare him. And I think it's interesting that the first verse about Moses is not even about Moses. It's about other people. That's one of the main things God will use in your life to prepare you is other people. It's the people he places in your life. Look what it says in verse 23. It says about Moses, it says, by faith Moses, when he was born, well, he didn't do much for that. But he was hidden for three months. He's pretty passive in the situation so far. It's his parents who hit him. He's hidden for three months. It's talking about his parents, by his parents. His parents don't even get named here. In fact, the book of Exodus is actually originally called the book of names. They don't get named in Exodus 2 either. It's not until Exodus chapter 6 that we learn their names are Am Aram and Jochebed. Store those away if you haven't any kids yet. If I had another kid and it was a boy, there's a, there's a name in Acts, Blastus. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Whatever. Side note, bonus material. Uh, so it says here, back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They hid this baby for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful. The Exodus account says he was a fine child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so what you see here is the first thing that, that God did to develop Moses was to use these other people. Because what happened in Moses' life, I meet people every once in a while today that are like, I don't, we're not going to have any kids because this world's so messed up. It's better than it used to be. Because you read the book of Exodus, like we think things just progressively keep getting worse. Oh, really? Uh, well, like we're talking about abortion? Oh, that's terrible, the heinous sin. But have you read about the God of Moloch? I mean, like people would sacrifice their living children to Moloch in hopes of financial prosperity. This is not new stuff, by the way. You know what's happening in Moses' day? There's a new king in town. And so the book of Genesis ends with Joseph. And somehow this guy hasn't heard of Joseph. Like, I don't know how that's even, you're the king. You haven't heard of Joseph is what I think when I read Exodus chapter one, which says he didn't know about Joseph. And so he comes in, he knows that he's the king of Egypt. They call him the Pharaoh. They don't ever show his name, which is an ironic literature device of saying, we're going to tell you who wins. It's Yahweh in the book of names, a guy named Pharaoh. We don't even know his name. So we don't know which Pharaoh it is, but he's the new king. And so he comes in and he says, uh, I know that I'm in charge of all of Egypt and that we own the Israelites as our slaves, but I'm insecure as a king. So I'm not real secure the fact that the Israelites keep having babies. And so let's stop them from having babies. And here's his plan. His plan is we're going to work the men really hard so that when they get home, they won't have the energy to do the thing you need to do in order to have babies. And so try and imagine how this went because Exodus tells us that they, when they do this plan, they start having more babies. And so I imagine that the husband came home. It's like, honey, do this. There's, you know, this is squeaking. You got to fix that. You want to watch him? I don't have time. It's exhausting on time for a movie. Do you want to do that one thing? Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> it's like miraculous empowerment at that moment. And so the harder they worked, the less time they had, still the more babies they had. Isn't that crazy? 
And so then the king of Egypt decides, all right, plan two. We're going to go through the healthcare system. I'm going to go to the healthcare givers and I'm going to make them kill these babies. And so he says to the midwives, they're the ones that would deliver babies at that time. He says, when the Hebrew women give birth, not just to a baby, but to a baby boy, I want you to kill the baby and then tell them it was stillborn. But what he didn't take into account was it's possible that the midwives might have some convictions. And what the Bible says is the midwives feared God. We're going to see a little bit more next week when we talk about fear, is the fear of God actually casts out the fear of man. And so they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they had the babies be born, and then they went to Pharaoh and was like, these women, I mean, they just give babies, they're so strong, and they give them so fast. And so they kind of lied a little bit, but God blessed them, their shrewdness, and he gave them children too, the midwives. So now we've got to come up with a third plan because we're trying to kill these babies and now they're just like coming out of everywhere. It's just like a bunch of babies, big vans driving around, babies, all kinds of big passages, all kinds of stuff, babies, just babies everywhere. And so Pharaoh, what he does is, it's Exodus chapter one, verse 22. This is what Moses is born into. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. The Nile is crocodile infested waters. It's murder but you shall let every daughter live. So in other words, he's put a bounty, a wanted poster on every Hebrew baby born. Jochebed and her husband, Aram, already have two kids. They've got Miriam, the oldest sister. They've got Aaron, who's three years older than Moses. And now Moses is born. The threat here is not, think about our context, these are dark days that we live in now. We're arguing Roe v. Wade, you know, is somebody allowed to kill their child if they choose to do so? This wasn't about allowing. This is requiring that if you see a baby born, you kill that baby. And not only do you kill that baby, let me tell you how to kill that baby. You take him to the Nile, you throw him in that crocodile-infested water. But it says in our text that they didn't do that. The Moses parents, they had some convictions. But it says, it's kind of funny the way it says it in the text. Did you see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, when they saw the child was beautiful. And the NIV says, no ordinary child. Some translations in the ESV and the NIV and the Exodus translation, they say it was a fine baby. So you mean to tell me, the Bible is saying they were going to kill their kid, but they were like, no, oh, he's so cute. <laughs> Have you seen babies? They're not cute, okay? They're just not cute. I love them. Great, the noises are nice, their smells are terrible, you don't want to make a noise in the middle of the night, like all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't just because of looks. The word that's used there for a fine child, a beautiful, not ordinary, it's hard to translate, but it connects, it echoes back to the Genesis account in the creation. God created and it was Tob. It's Hebrew here. It's good. What it was is they saw that their child was God's good creation. They don't, they don't get to choose to kill that. But the implication is if you don't, then you're going to die. Not just it's difficult. Not so hard. Talk about a hard culture. But they stood by their convictions. Here's the reality. Some of us don't take risks because we lack conviction. And what happens is we conform to this world. And let me tell you something. As you conform to the culture, compromise is coming. But when you stand on convictions, that'll well up some courage. Did you hear that? When you lack conviction, you're going to be, you will, you will conform to the world, you will compromise. But, but, Christianity is called to be countercultural. We spend most of our time of trying to get the same exact goal. Like, who's ever asked you this? Who's ever said to you, can you tell me about the hope that you have? 
Because First Peter, he's writing to a persecuted group of people, and he says to them, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. I wonder who's asking. Because I tell people, but I don't get a lot of people coming to me and going, hey, can you tell me about your hope? The reason why anyone would ask is because it's so different than theirs. I think what happens is we're so much like the world, they don't see that what's the difference. And so what happens in, in, in this passage is the reason why these parents, these unnamed parents in Hebrews, are even getting mentioned is because of their convictions to be countercultural. And do you know why that's why the early church grew? Because they were countercultural? And what we see now is we see churches, you know, you don't talk about bashing a model. How about the progressive model or, or the mainstream model of saying just everything in the culture is good, like everybody's good. I think that they're well-meaning. I think that they're saying, let's cast a big net and then hopefully people will come and then we'll introduce them to God. The problem is by the time they get to that spot, they've forgotten God themselves. Romans actually warns about this, by the way, specifically talking about homosexuality. Now, every time I say homosexuality is a sin, somebody leaves our church. But... Here's the deal. I love you. I'd love to have lunch with you if you want to talk about that. The Bible's super clear about it. It's not even fuzzy about whether homosexuality is a sin. So is any other kind of adultery. So if you're sleeping with somebody of the opposite sex you're not married to, that's also sin. But Romans chapter 1, do you know what it says will happen? Not only does it condemn homosexuality, but it says, you know, disobeying parents and gossips and slanderers. And it says that the people will not only approve of that, but endorse it and hold it up. And then you see what churches are doing. It's crazy. Like, not only is it like, yeah, come to church. Yeah, of course we want you to come to church and hear the gospel. The guy's got a better plan for you. But they're saying, no, and these are our leaders. These are our pastors. And this is a good thing. And you should do this. And then they wonder why they lose all their impact. It's never worked. It's like, just learn history. That's not, that's not how you change the world. And that's, that's how Christianity… Why would anyone have joined the early church? We read about the book of Acts and like see these miracles. But I mean, these people, if you joined the church, you weren't getting elected to a political office. One going to help you sell more houses. These people were getting killed. They're being ostracized. They're thought of as foolish for, for doing this. But there were some unique things. There's some historians. One guy has written a couple books on this. Uh, his name, if you want to look it up on your own, is Larry Hurtado. I think that's how you pronounce it. H-U-R-T-A-D-O. I've never met him, so he's never told me how to pronounce his name, but that's how you spell it. He, in two different books, outlines, here's why people join the church. The church, Christianity was different because, one, it was multiracial, multiethnic. And it wasn't because like, hey, we need to get as many people of different backgrounds here as possible. Here's what it showed. It showed that Christianity transcended culture. And the world hadn't seen a religion like that before. That people in India would follow Christ, and people in Australia would follow Christ, and people in America, North America, South America, people all over the world would follow Christ, and it wasn't because they were born into it. Now, there's a danger of that when you call your nation a Christian nation. Some people just assume they're a Christian because of their ethnicity. But Christianity was different because that wasn't the case. It says the early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation that started in a culture of shame and honor. Hmm. So in a culture where you're told because of your position that people must honor you, and then as a Christian you turn the other cheek, that drew people in because it was countercultural. Uh, they were always pro-life, sanctity of life. It wasn't always abortion. They always had that medical procedure of abortion. But what people do when they didn't want their babies in the New Testament times, they would take them out to a garbage dump and leave them there to die death by exposure. And Christians would oftentimes be the ones to go and take those babies into their homes and raise them as their own kids. It was counter-cultural. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't easy. They were famous for hospitality. And what he cites for that is not they had great parties. <laughs> which is probably true as well, but 
it was when the two big plagues came through in the first three centuries that the Christians were the ones that went and instead of arguing about whether the plague was real or not, just helped the sick people. And it was their sexual ethic that made a huge difference. Women were always expected to be monogamous uh, when they were in a marital relationship, but men, it was not only acceptable, but expected that they would not be. In fact, it was part of the culture that you showed your status in culture by having sex with people that were lower on the social ladder. So not only your spouse, but then if you had a slave or children, then it was expected because you have these desires and you have to fulfill these desires. But what Christianity showed was you're not a slave to your desire, that self-control is actually possible. People were drawn to that. Well, it's countercultural. Because conviction is what has an impact for Christ. Not conformity to the culture that leads to compromise. And so what happens here with Moses, he's born into a home of conviction. They saw that he was a good creation of God, a fine child. And so they hid him. How in the world do they do that? You ever ask yourself that? Anybody here have a newborn? How do you hide a baby for three months? So they hid him for three months. But then when they couldn't hide him any longer, you know what happens, right? Do you? Because oftentimes what many of us believe is this fairy tale story that, that Moses' mom took him down to the water and he floated away and he just happened to come to this princess who then raised him up in Pharaoh's home. But did you, have you read Exodus 2? It's only 10 verses. Just read Exodus 2, 1 through 10, and you see the account. That's not what happened. What happens is she puts him in a basket and there's a bunch of meaning in the basket that's there that connects to the story of Noah as another deliverer would come through water with a new people. But what happens with Moses is she puts him in a basket. It doesn't say she floated him down the water. It says she set him. She placed him in the reed. She put him in a very specific spot. And then Pharaoh's daughter, uh, the richest man in the world, daughter, have you ever asked yourself, why is she taking a bath with crocodiles? It wasn't to get clean, I can tell you that. And they might not have Amazon Prime, but they had cleaning facilities. You didn't have to go to a river and get with crocodiles. It was a ceremonial cleaning. She's probably going down there because she wants to be fertile to have a child. Wouldn't it be pretty shrewd? And doesn't Jesus tell us to be as innocent as does, but as shrewd as vipers? Wouldn't it be pretty shrewd of Jochebed to scout out for three months? Where does she come when she comes for her ceremonial cleaning? And then to specifically place. And if you don't think that's what happened, do you really think moms, like moms, just for real, you, seven to ten-year-old daughter, do you think that Miriam just walked by and was like, oh, you just found my brother. I know someone that can nurse him. I don't know this, but I'm imagining what probably happened is Jochebed, Moses' mom, said, listen, Miriam, you're going to stand right here, and if she throws the baby back in, go get him. If she doesn't, she takes the baby, you say, hey, I know somebody. Not saying she had control issues, just saying she was shrewd. <laughs> and then something she can't control, and you think about that Mandela quote, don't play small. Sometimes I'll watch movies, not just like Top Gun, but and they'll be robbing something. And why do they always rob the most difficult place in the world? Why isn't it like, you know what, let's just knock over 10 convenience stores. Why do, they're not saying you should do that, but I'm just saying like, let's break into the Pentagon. It's like, what are you thinking? And so they'll be like, breaking into the White House. And so that's the kind of plan that she must have had because she's actually sending her son to be raised in the home by the guy who made it a law that her son would die. But listen to what God does. We sing about him being a waymaker. God 
has her get paid as a slave to do the very thing that she wants the most in her heart to do, raise her son, train him in godliness, a family that fears God, teaching Moses to fear God, teaching him about his Hebrew ethnicity, teaching him about perhaps that he is the deliverer that's to come. We don't know this for sure, but the Bible doesn't say it's not true, that Josephus, the historian, says that the father of Moses had received a vision from God that his son was going to be the deliverer, and that's one of the reasons why they saved him, and that's what they taught him when they were bringing him up until he was a toddler. It's possible that's true because when Stephen teaches in Acts chapter 7 to the Sanhedrin before Stephen is killed for his faith, he says to them that when Moses killed an Egyptian, he supposed, assumed, that the Hebrews were going to see him as a deliverer. Why would he think he was the deliverer? Unless somebody told him he's the deliverer. And so they train him up because God uses people to prepare us for the abnormal risk that he's going to call us to do. But he doesn't just use people who use our past. See what happens in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2? Is that Moses makes the decision that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 24. We talked about it. We'll unpack it more next week. But it says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing, so he made a choice, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The problem is he did it the wrong way. What happened is he wakes up, he sees an injustice. Some of you, what are you passionate about? What arouses emotion in you? My experience, and so this isn't like I know this is true for everybody, but my experience is when I spend time with Christians, there's usually something that they're passionate about. And sometimes it's, you know, kids being fed that need food. Sometimes it's people in the medical industry of some things that need to happen. And sometimes it's people, the teachers and things that people need to be taught and adoption. And like, there's all these different things, poverty, human trafficking. There's these passions. You know, the greatest injustice in the world is that God doesn't receive glory in all things. And when God gets you to the place where you delight in him, you enjoy in him, like uh, uh, pastor was talking, our worship pastor uh, Bryce was talking about at the beginning when he was reading Psalm 84, he says, better is one day in your course and a thousand elsewhere. When we get to the spot, we realize that. We become hungry and passionate about God's glory. And then we start to see all those other things that we're passionate about, poverty, hunger, all those things. We see those as platforms to then show how God should be receiving glory. And what happens is when our concern and our calling and our passions come into contact with that, that's when you're living in God's purpose. That's when you're living in what you've been made for. And then the abnormal risks of this world doesn't seem like risks to you. Because you've weighed it out and you're like, it's all about God's glory anyways. Why would I forfeit living for God's glory, which I'm promised throughout Hebrews I'm going to be rewarded for for all of eternity for passing pleasures, discomfort, people not liking me. That's nonsense. And so Moses, he gets to that spot where his, his passions come up, but he does it the wrong way. If you do the right thing the wrong way, it's still wrong. So then he, he hides the body and he flees the Midian. But God even uses that. God will use your biggest pains, your mess-ups, your mistakes, your time in prison, the divorce, all that stuff for the calling that he has on your life. He uses Moses' murder. He goes to Midian. He spends 40 years there. <laughs> he's a shepherd while he's there. What does a shepherd do? Protects people, guides people, leads people. Oh, I'm sorry. Protects sheep, guides sheep, leads sheep, gets them to water while they wander throughout the desert. Pretty obvious if you know Moses' story, what's happening here. Problem is, Moses doesn't know his own story. We do. And so he's living it. And we don't know all of our story. That's why it's risk. We're living it. But maybe God's preparing you right now. The place and the passions and your past and the people for the abnormal risk he's going to call you to take. 
what happens in Midian is pretty incredible. I think that Moses probably sat there, if he did know he was a deliverer, if, if his dad did tell him that. He said, well, I, it went to, I went for it and it went bad. <laughs> now I'm hiding. I'm going to deliver it. Now, when he first gets to Midian, he does have a little of deliverance because what happens is he's at this well and this group of shepherds comes. He goes Jason Bourne on them, kicks their butt. And uh, then he gives some water to the women that they were trying to flee away from the well. And then he marries one of them. And so he's like, well, I delivered these ladies, I guess. And then I thought, wait, those were a bunch of shepherds. And then Moses becomes a shepherd. I wonder if, you know how like here they'll have like a conference for doctors or a conference for teachers. I wonder if they ever had a shepherd conference. And they saw each other again, like years later. Moses is like, hey, what's up, guys? They're like, Jason Bourne on me. I'm talking to that guy. So he becomes a shepherd. He's wandering around here. But the geography is a little fuzzy for some folks. My wife and I are going to lead a trip to the Holy Land in June next year. So if you want to go, start thinking about that. But uh, you start getting out there and seeing some of the places where this happened. Do you know that Moses spends 40 years in a spot many people believe he's going to be leading the Israelites through? And while we don't know exactly where that spot was, because the geography gets a little bit fuzzy as it changes throughout time, what we do know is in Numbers chapter 25, God says you're going to go to battle with the Midianites. In Numbers chapter 30, one of the last, 31, one of the last things that Moses does in his life is he fights the Midianites in a war. Do you know how much Russia, China, America would pay to get a spy to live in a culture for 40 years to understand the way they think, to understand the, their thought process, to, to understand their customs? Moses is living with these people for 40 years. He doesn't even know he's a deep fake. Part of his training. God's at work weaving your whole story together. But without risk, it's impossible to please him. Maybe he does have plans for you, stuff that he says in the Bible. Maybe he really meant it when he said, if anyone wants to follow me, you've got to lose your life. What is he stirring in you for your next faith step? Have you ever I've read stuff from Acts you've experienced? Have you ever experienced this? The Bible says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Indeed, all, except for Americans, who desire to live a godly life. Oh, it doesn't say that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not super encouraging. What about this one, though? John 14, 12. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, except for Americans, no, don't say that. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. John chapter 14, he's talking about sin and the Holy Spirit. And you look at Moses, you can be like, well, Moses is iconic. Moses is pretty incredible. But you remember that Deuteronomy passage? It says, no one has arisen like Moses. Oh, but there is someone like Moses. Who else do we know? that comes to be both ruler and redeemer. <laughs> Who else do we know that comes and his mission is to set the captives free, Luke 14, 4, 18. Who else do we know that provides bread in the desert? Maybe has a miraculous water, whether it's water to wine or walking on water, water experience. Who else do we, like Moses' life was all for pointing people to Jesus. That's the Passover was all about. Blood post of the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn. He comes to die for you. See, the difference between Moses and Jesus is Jesus never sinned so that he could die for you. The kingdom that he left, way better than Egyptian palace. It was heaven. And he came here for you, to deliver you. And you got Moses with these grumbling and complaining people. He intercedes on their behalf. He says, I'll take God's wrath so that they don't experience it. Who does that point to? Jesus. Do you know him? If you do, why would you say anything but yes to him? It doesn't matter what he commands. It doesn't matter what he asks. Yeah, I'm in. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. Worship team's going to come. We're going to have communion together as a church family here in just a moment. But uh, some of you might not be in the church family. 
You know, I say hi to you and welcome and welcome to the church. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've been coming since 2007 when we started this church, but you haven't placed your faith in Jesus and that is your faith step. That's the risk. That's the risk and it's abnormal. Do you know why? The road is narrow. And so while stats say that 80% of Americans claim to be Christians, the Bible says that is not possible. And we know it's not true by looking at lives because the lives just don't look like what Jesus talked about. Does yours? Nobody's perfect, but are you following Jesus? Or have you fallen for some false version of Christianity, some American version of Christianity? If so, then turn your life over to Jesus today. That's, that's what he wants from you. He wants you to say, here I am. I'm yours. I acknowledge my sin. I believe you were sinless. I believe you died. I believe you rose from the dead. And I want to place my faith in you. Place your faith in him. Whether you're watching online, you want to pray right now and ask Jesus to be your savior. He promises you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, that you'll be saved. There's something magical about how you say the words or what you say the words. You might say some words like this. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe your son Jesus is the savior of the world and I want to ask Jesus to be my savior right now and I hand over my world. My sin, my life, it's all yours. If you just did that and you were genuine, he says that you're part of his family. All of heaven rejoices. That can't be changed. Some of you have done that before. Some of you haven't taken a step since you've done that. And he keeps calling for a life of faith. It's not just one act of faith. It's not about praying a prayer. If you put your faith in him, then you keep walking with him. And so what's the next step? For some of you, maybe baptism. Just let us know that you're interested. We'd love to baptize you. Like, I'll do it today if you want. Some of you, it might be something in your marriage. Some of you might need to confess sins to one another. Some of you might need to take a step of faith. You know that God's been calling you to do something. You've gone a different route and it's time to turn, turn back to him. I don't know what all the details are, what that'll mean for you, but God will work that out. You don't have to have that all figured out. Just say yes. Father, I pray. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for any that have just become brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray for your strength, your peace, your power, your power, the things you tell us to do. God, will you empower them? Might require supernatural courage to confess an affair, to turn from an addiction, to stop hoarding all their money, stop spending more than they make, to use their time and their talents for your kingdom rather than their own glory. Father, you know, you know what. Speak that by the power of your spirit in this room right now. Speak truth. Speak to them. Speak individually. Speak personally. Speak words that only you would know to them that I could never guess from the stage. So they know that you're speaking and then empower them to do that. And maybe you're like Moses and you're arguing, well, not me and how about this and why? And I couldn't and God will equip you. He'll empower you. And it's to point people to Jesus, not because you're awesome. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.